0: to Crazy
1: Faith Talk. I'm Sarah. I'm Steve. And I'm Erica. And we have just begun, starting last week, a new series here for the uh, late summer, early fall, um, looking at characters that we could have sworn read in the Bible and turned out not to be. This has been kind of like back in the beginning of the summer. We took a look at ideas or verses that everybody was sure they read in the Bible and turned out not to be. Back then, we talked about things like God helps those who help themselves or um, this too shall pass. And turns out those words weren't there in the Bible. It turns out we do it with characters in the Bible too, sometimes called the Mandela effect. And last time we took a look at that beloved, non-existent Grinchy character from the nativity story, the innkeeper, who turns out not to be there because there ain't an inn. But where are we going to go today?
2: So today we're going back into Exodus and we're looking at one of those kind of... somewhat villainous, could be villainous um, characters, but not really. Um, The angel of death from um, the plagues of Egypt part of the Exodus story. This is the final plague of Egypt, and this is the death of the firstborn that Moses warns Pharaoh about and says, you know, um, that God is going to come and he's going to kill the firstborn male of every household in Egypt uh, as the final plague of the 10 plagues to try to get Pharaoh to let his people go. And for some reason, probably because of some of the movies and things have been made around, um, you know, the the exodus story. We want to say that it's an angel of death that comes around and kills all the firstborn. But that's not not what scripture says.
1: Yeah, yeah. So you, you raised a really important point just right in the beginning that for a lot of us, sort of like with the nativity story, part of how we end up with this misconception is the ways we've had this story told to us. Often not first by reading it from the pages of our local Bible, but through movie or uh, Christmas pageant or things like that. And yeah, in a lot of well-known retellings of the story of the plagues and the Exodus story, sometimes it's explicitly said, God sends the angel of death to kill the firstborn, or the way this plague is described or shown almost creates a character to sort of take the the burden off god or the responsibility off of god sometimes even very clearly named as ah this is the angel of death huh? Mm -hmm. and maybe in our culture uh that also uses the that image of the grim reaper as the personification of death we we sometimes sort of do that same thing oh that that's what death looks like death is a person who wears a black cloak probably a skull for a face (laughs) and carries a sickle and that Mm -hmm. must be angel of death like we sort of lump all these separate images together and glom them together and like oh that god hires out like a hitman or something like that the angel of death to do god's dirty work um i guess i think that may be a part of why we do that to this story that it's it's easier somehow to imagine god won't get god's hands dirty doing something like that if that mean old hitman that god hires the angel of death But when you read the the story, both in Exodus 11 and
2: Exodus 12, Exodus 11, Moses is talking to Pharaoh, and he's telling him what's about to happen, because he's warning him pretty much about every plague that's going to happen, like this this will happen, this will happen. Moses says, um, thus says the Lord about midnight, I, God says, I will go out through Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh to the firstborn of the female slave, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then when it it happens in chapter 12, again, it is God who is doing this dirty work. It's Mm -hmm. not an angel. It's not a grim reaper. Never made that connection before, Steve, but thank you for that. You know, it is God who does this. Yeah. And that's not comfortable to think about.
1: Right, right. Now, I think it, it may be worth exploring a little bit about both why we're uncomfortable, but also why the biblical text seems to lean so hard on saying, this is God who's doing this and not some other entity. And I guess I'd say, maybe it's worth spending a little bit of time there, that the the story we call the Passover and the 10th plague, as the 10th number suggests, is one in a series of 10, and they sort of escalate, right? That There is this, in the, the early chapters of Exodus, as God's trying to get Pharaoh to let the enslaved Hebrews to be set free, it sort of becomes a contest between who really is God. Is Yahweh the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob? Is this the real God? Or is the whole domination system of Egypt, which would include actual literal gods and goddesses the Egyptians believed in, like Osiris and Ra and Isis and things like that, and Anubis and all of them. As well as Pharaoh, who sees himself as the embodiment mm-hmm. of the mm-hmm. sun god and sort of operates as though I have all power, I call the shots, I bring life and death. And I've seen a number of scholars who do work to point out how each of the plagues leading up to the Passover is almost like it's intentionally taking a shot at a different God in the Egyptian pantheon. So, you know, there's gods of the river and there's gods of uh, harvest and there's gods of fertility and there's gods of the sun and the moon. So that when Yahweh says you think your gods are in charge of the Nile river? Nope. I am. You think your gods are in charge of frogs? Nope. I am. And that each one of those is meant to say, Yahweh is powerful. The Egyptian pantheon is empty and Pharaoh's power is empty and it's built all on a sham and that finally escalates the power of life and death. So it's not like God's first shot out of the beginning is, I'm going to start killing people, but it, it builds because at every turn, Pharaoh refuses to listen, refuses to let the people go. And those first
2: couple plagues, and correct me if I'm just remembering this from movies and not from actual <laughs> scripture. Um, because again, that's what we do. Right. Um, you know, Pharaoh's priests are able to kind of recreate some of those first they plagues, miracle, board. you know, or they, they make it look like that, you know, the, the right. turning of the Nile to blood, you know, when Moses' staff turns into a snake, right. you know, they were able to do the same kind of thing. Um, you know, but this one, yeah, they don't try to compete with this one. Right.
0: Yeah, so I had to, um, I was also wondering, because like, that's definitely in the Prince of Egypt, which is my like, mental image of this. <laughs> right part of exodus um but i did go up and in exodus chapter 7 where the first plague the water turned to blood um it does say in verse 22 but the magicians of egypt did the same by their secret arts so pharaoh's heart remained Mm -hmm. hardened, and he would not listen to them as the lord had said so yes the okay. <laughs> the priests or magicians or whatever they called themselves did manage to replicate at least the first plague.
1: Yeah, I can remember too as a kid watching the Cecil B. DeMille, the Ten Commandments, and that whole scene where <laughs> Pharaoh's people can turn their staffs into snakes, too. It's like, yeah, yeah, so clearly part of the tension in the story is even though God sort of says to Moses, I'm going to keep giving him chances and he's not going to listen. I know from the beginning, he's not going to listen. But that sort of is spelled out in advance. This is how this story is going to go. And for a while, yeah, they can keep up. And then pretty quickly, God's power eclipses what they can do. uh, And it builds so that the Passover, the, the death of the firstborn, is not God's first shot without warning, but that these build. And the way the text tells it, God sort of says, this is how I'm going to gain glory for myself. This is how I will reveal that Pharaoh's a pretender and I'm the real deal, because, his power will quickly be exhausted. It will be clear. He can't do what I can do. And that culminates finally in the death of the firstborn. So from the biblical writer's perspective in Exodus, this whole thing has been a way of showing Pharaoh and his whole system of dominating and enslaving people is a lie. It's a house of cards and Mm -hmm. it's all been show. uh, And God is the real God. So it makes sense if you're the writer of Exodus to say, uh, I need to show that God is the one with the power and not that God has to subcontract to an angel of death or something like that. So there are reasons why the biblical writer would be real clear. This is God's doing. God is the one because God has the power over life and death and not Pharaoh and not anybody else for that matter. Um, we might want to explore, though, or at least talk a little bit about... Yeah, what, what what does it mean to say we Christians who are real sure we believe in a God who is loving and merciful and loves even stinkers? And yet also, we've been real insistent that the God we meet in Jesus is not a separate being from the God we meet in the Hebrew mm-hmm. scriptures. And so we don't get to say, well, that was a mean God. Now we have a nice God or something like that. Mm-hmm. So, somehow these are the same God. That's That's tricky. That's difficult. Uncomfortable, at least.
0: Our God is a God of liberation. Yeah. And you know, when when I take a look at at the Exodus text, I am reminded a lot of uh, my preaching professor, and how he was quite fond of saying, "You're, you know, you're the people in your pews are going to hear things differently depending on who they are." Yeah. You will say a sentence. And some people in your pews are going to be deeply troubled and conflicted. And then other people will hear that exact same sentence and they will find deep comfort. And you can't exactly control how your people are going to hear this thing that you say, um, because you can't control what they hear. Um, You can just control what you say coming out of your mouth. But when I take a look at the Exodus story, I think who finds comfort in this and who finds, like, be deeply troubled by this. Mm -hmm. And I think of the Hebrew people and how they would have found deep comfort in this because they were being liberated from slavery. This is the thing that this is the straw that broke the camel's back that let them leave that let them go to no longer be slaves, but to be free. And I imagine that some of them might have had conflicting feelings about this if they had known somebody who had died. But in all likelihood, they might not have known who all died because they left, right? Like They were told to be prepared to just walk the next day, have your staff in hand, have your bag packed on your back, get ready to just move. Um, But really, this is their liberating moment. God liberates.
2: Yeah. And I wonder, and and I personally struggle with this because I am so very much against the death penalty, but if they don't see this also as somewhat a form of justice for the loss of their children Mm -hmm. a generation before,
1: Right. Well, and and I think it's fair to say when the biblical narrative has God supernaturally intervening, that's different than saying the state has the authority to kill people in the name of criminal justice. So I Oh think gosh, can, yeah, kind of, absolutely. Yeah yeah. 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 So I, I think you're you're honest on to something, both of you, that the, the text seems to assume this is a story of liberation. This is good news. This is God is setting us free from the ones who had kept us enslaved for four hundred years. Um, and how many of not just children were killed when Pharaoh starts killing babies, but how many of our previous generations lived and died and suffered in bitter slavery and were whipped to death or beaten to death or worked to death. Yeah. So yeah, there's that sense of this is liberation. Um and so I, 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 I go ahead.
0: Sorry, Steve. Um, so I, I also think that we have a tendency to place ourselves in the story.
2: Yeah. Right? Like yeah. we have
0: that tendency, we can't help it. We you know, But we definitely practice this a lot in the Gospels when we're all like, oh, this is a parable. Who are you in the parable? Right. What um, kind of soil
1: mm-hmm.
0: are you? Right. <laughs> so when you're hearing the Exodus story, who are you?
1: Yeah.
0: Right? Are mm-hmm. you placing yourself in the shoes of the Hebrew people? Are you placing yourselves in the shoes of the Egyptians? Yep. Like, who are you? Yeah. And I think that this might give us some insight as to why we might be uncomfortable. Um, I am a white, almost middle-aged, (laughs) middle-class woman in the US. And so I have a very difficult time putting myself in the shoes of the Hebrew people. I have not faced enough oppression to fully embody what they might have gone through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have faced sexism, sure. But that's that's about it. And even the sexism that I have faced has not been that severe. Um, I have been very blessed that way. Um, I have an easier time placing myself in the shoes of the Egyptians. And so, in by doing that, I am horrified. Like, what do you mean? God might kill my firstborn son. Mm -hmm. Like, does God not love my Robbie? What is happening? Um, And so in that way, being a trained pastor, I have to really resist not letting God off the hook. Yeah,
2: yeah.
0: Because Mm -hmm. I want to make somebody else the bad guy because I am very uncomfortable making God the bad guy. Right. When in actuality, no, God's not the bad guy.
1: Right. The Egyptians right, right.
0: are. The oppressors are the bad guys.
1: Right. And right.
0: God is liberating God's people from the bad guys. And that might mean that I have been placing myself in the shoes of the bad guys. Because the demographic that I fall into are often the bad guys. Like, mm-hmm. And that, that makes me uncomfortable and it probably yeah. should.
1: May, and maybe we could say too that to be a little bit more uh, a slightly nuanced in the, in the language that we definitely live in what what is the superpower of the world in our world today like Egypt is the superpower in its story that it's the empire and we're a lot closer to living in the empire than being the the you know scrappy rebellion or uh, the people seeking freedom. Um, and that doesn't mean that there weren't nice polite Egyptians but it means corporately they're part of a whole system, a domination system that is built on somebody else's slave labor. Um, And that part of God's judgment isn't just on individual people, but to say that whole system is wrong, that can't continue, Mm -hmm. because it perpetuates itself with finding new people to be enslaved and new people who have to be oppressed and new people who have to be exploited. And in some sense, the Bible charts how we keep doing it Once once we leave Egypt. It's eventually, going to be Babylon, it'll be Assyria, it'll be eventually Rome. We keep changing the letterhead, but the same dynamic keeps happening over and over and over again. And God repeatedly is striking down the way of empire and offering an alternative, um, so that we end up doing the same thing like in Revelation, where we're like, Well, how come our country isn't in the book of Revelation? Aren't we the saviors of the world? We want to re- we see ourselves as the saviors of the world, whereas, well, it turns out we're a lot closer to Babylon, it turns out we're a lot more like mm-hmm. first century Rome. And maybe we don't want to recognize the ways that um, we are closer and more aligned with those superpowers of the past. Um, Yes. It affects the way we hear this story to be sure. I wonder as a thought experiment, um, because sometimes we get uncomfortable with the idea that we might not be identified more closely with the heroes of the Bible story, but how we do it even with our own uh, history. So like, you know, uh, I can remember, reading stories or learning in elementary school or seeing in movies, any depiction of the revolutionary war, um, you know, like you cheer on the, uh, the, the revolutionary war fighters, even when they were brutally killed the the British, because we're on the side of we're fighting for independence. And so it's okay when we kill the British or it's okay when Swamp Fox, you know, General Francis Marion, you know, would use all those sort of sneaky tactics to go kill more British people because we're seeking liberation. And, but obviously when the British tell the story, it's an atrocity that uh, American fighters wouldn't fight in the respectable uh, traditional battlefield ways. They, you know, hide and fight in the woods and withdraw that that doesn't seem noble if you're the british um and how often that same dynamic has played out in our history when we tell stories of of, uh slave rebellions in the american south right when nat turner rises up or there's other slave rebellions how easy it is to be like oh well these are the bad guys because they killed people well wait a second here how is that different from the uh revolutionaries you know in the the american revolution fighting off the british It, it, it it's a reminder how quickly We take sides by who we identify with, and we justify Mm -hmm. this kind of killing of your enemy is okay, and other kind of killing of people is wrong because that threatens me or makes me uncomfortable. And this is a text, the the Exodus story is a text that deliberately takes a side and says, God is on the side of the enslaved if it comes to picking between the enslaved and the empire. you know, Between Pharaoh and the enslaved, God is there to liberate the slaves. There is no just saying, well, doesn't Pharaoh's life matter? Well, yes, but he's chosen already to oppress people for centuries. God is on the side of the enslaved. That's an uncomfortable in some way thing to say if we have certain allegiances to the empires of our day.
0: So I have a slightly different question. Okay. Because we originally started this as this character, the angel of death, does not appear in the Exodus story. Do we get any other mentions of the angel of death in the Bible?
1: I think one place that, again, we might reach for and start to conflate them is there's that place in Revelation where we get those four horsemen, you know, and each of them have different names and there's pestilence and they, you know, each get different color horses and themed accessories. And one of them, the rider is called death, right? Uh, And I Mm -hmm. think that's Part of where we get our grim reaper imagery from in Western culture uh, is a lot of the stuff that comes up with with that. So if if we've been for a long time in our culture conflating the grim reaper, that figure of death from Revelation, and then the this story from Exodus, we're going to you know picture them all as the same when maybe they are not meant to and i i would make the case that in revelation we're not talking about literal characters i mean those are all symbolic rather than that there's actually somewhere people riding on horses and one of them is a skeleton
0: (laughs) i think it just is it's so intriguing to me because i googled this Mm -hmm. um you know who is the angel of death and you know you like there's things like oh well like you said, in Rez- uh, in Revelation, there is, you know, the ho- death, who rides a horse. Um, but then there is also this character, which is um, Azrael, who, oh, a- Azrael, is that how is you it, pronounce uh, it?
1: Is, it is there two Z's? Is it Azazel?
0: A-Z-R-A-E-L. Oh,
1: Azrael. Okay, yeah, okay. Azrael.
0: Yeah. Um. But, like, it's definitely, I think, is coming more from, like, myth or urban legend, not actual Bible stuff of, like, you know, that before the creation of man... Azrael proved to be the only angel brave enough to go down to earth and face the hordes of um, Ibias, the devil, in order to bring God the materials needed to make man. And this is from um, Britannica, the encyclopedia, and it's like, oh, yeah. I'm not, enti- like, that's not really from the Bible.
1: Right. I, I think that's Where another place. Where is this ple-
0: from? But, like, a- he's named as the angel of death
1: right right and i think it's worth noting i've, I've done a little bit of research as well that azrael is a figure who shows up both in later jewish uh speculation mysticism fan fiction as also islamic tradition as well uh and so in in arabic there's azrael as well as the the uh, hebrew sort of inspired the name itself means god has helped so it's again like the, the word azrael doesn't mean angel of death um uh it's actually gotta be related somehow to the name lazarus too i think uh but anyway um the um the 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 figure sort of emerges later on in later tradition um and also i think sometimes is credited as the one who separates body from soul so again like you can tell there's enough centuries of development of thinking that later on we even invented this idea that souls and bodies are separable like you can have an appendectomy and i guess someone can separate your soul out too um But uh, I guess you could say, yeah, later tradition invented this character uh, and sort of culled it from maybe biblical and extra biblical traditions. But as far as the Bible's story itself, not there. Later on, we've invented these kind of names for these characters.
0: It just it's so fascinating to me how often like collectively as a culture or society will decide on this thing and then we present it in some sort of media, whether it's a book or a movie or a song. And then that just sort of helps reinforce this idea Mm -hmm. or character. And then it almost develops a life of its own until we're all just like, Oh yeah, the angel of death. That's totally a thing.
1: To me, this, this almost feels like what we have collectively done with Santa Claus that has a grounding in, Once upon a time, there's a real person named Nicholas. Nicholas has stories attached to him about being generous and secretly giving so that people didn't find out. That probably has rooting in history and that far we can go. But once you get stories that are about Jingle the Elf who helped Santa or Buddy the Elf who helped repair the sleigh or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, who are now taken to be literal characters in those stories who help this other figure we've now morphed from St. Nicholas, the Bishop of Myra in Turkey, who slapped Arius at the Council of Nicaea to this other mythical figure. And like, almost like sleight of hand, we didn't even realize that there'd been a switch, you know, and I think the same thing has happened that there's, yep, there's a biblical story where the, the de- God kills the firstborn. Can God use means or angels to do that? Sure. The text doesn't say, it, but sure, that could be God's choice. But over enough centuries, now we've turned that into, there was definitely one angel whose job it was, and they tapped you with their bony finger and their reaper scythe, and once they touched you, you died. Um, over enough centuries, those become characters of their own, yeah. To me, this is also... Uh... A really, really clear example of what the the fictional novel American Gods does. I mean, we've talked about that in this podcast a bunch of times before, but the whole notion that uh, sometimes what we do collectively is invent ideas and they eventually kind of personify almost to the point where everybody just accepts not just that death is a reality, but death becomes personified in this angel of death figure. Oh yeah, that, that's totally how it is. Like you say, it's a thing, I guess. Uh, and he keeps saying it with the same details long enough when we all go, yeah, I've st- I can start to picture that Reaper figure with the skull face. To me, it feels like it's worth recovering every so often with that. We don't have to be pedantic about it, but like it's worth going back and going, well, let's note where did those ideas come from and what actually is in the biblical text, especially because... Uh, in in our traditions, especially Protestant traditions, it's been important to say, ultimately, we we place authority in the canonical scriptures and not fan fiction that has emerged over centuries. So there's lots of things that people have said or riffed on about the story of the Exodus. But Christians have classically said, Exodus is telling is the one we consider normative and not the Prince of Egypt or and not Cecil B. DeMille's, the, you know, the Ten Commandments Um and every so often it's worth going. Here are differences that are worth noting about how here's how the story goes here versus here's how other tellings are. Um, are there other reasons that it might be worth us making this point that there's no angel of death named? Are there other reasons it matters or is this just sort of us picking at straws?
0: I think it is really important that God is the one doing the thing that God desires,
2: mm-hmm.
0: especially mm-hmm. in this really complicated kind of awful thing
2: mm-hmm. um
0: i will fully admit that i've not seen all of game of thrones
2: or read <laughs> the books
0: but in the first season which i did watch there is this moment where ned stark has to um pass judgment over this this man who has abandoned his post on the wall and you know the the man who has abandoned his post is all like i saw white walkers i am not up for fighting these things because they will kill me, and then I will be a white walker and um Ned Stark has to say, "You know the law if you abandon your p- post, if you break your oaths, you are sentenced to death. that you are like this is the law, mm-hmm. and he is the one who, since he passed the judgment, he swings the sword, yeah. and he's the one that executes this man. And he then like has this teaching moment with his sons who will, you know, one of whom is supposed to be the next Lord of Winterfell. And, but to me, it was a very like, you know, if you're the one that passes the judgment, you better be prepared to follow through and to be the one to actually do this thing. You know, don't have somebody else do your dirty work, so to speak. And so I think to me, it's really important that it is, god who is the one who is active and doing this thing and not just god keeping god's hands clean while also still Mm -hmm. somehow liberating his people
1: right like
0: and and i know that like it's still super sticky to me like i'm still really uncomfortable but again that's because i am on the side of empire here but it's (laughs) I, I still think it's really important that it's not, like, God on high saying, like, passing this, this sentence and then staying up in the ivory tower while other people go and do this thing. No, it's God is down here in the trenches, in the muck, in the mud, in the blood, in the grief.
1: Right. God right. is here
0: with
2: us. Mm-hmm. Right.
1: And that notion of that, however unsavory it is to be the one holding the sword to borrow your imagery from game of thrones. Like that also, there's a certain respectability of like, I'm not going to pass that off and pretend my hands are no. If, if this person, if justice requires this, I will be the agent of justice. Um, We might also say that um, part of our perspective as Christians is that ultimately Jesus has something to say about the character of God that is necessary. uh, In addition to the story we get in the exodus, Um, And there can yet be hope Mm -hmm. in new creation that even people who were dedicated servants of the empire might find redemption someday. Um, uh, And I mean, we might even talk about how in the broad sweep of scripture story, we also get stories of people who are representatives of the empire who end up changing their ways or being brought into the community of God's people, a literal centurion who comes to faith like Cornelius. Um, but that's not the end of the story, but yeah, there are times also where God has to very clearly say, I'm on the side of those who are being taken advantage of, and I will do whatever it takes to set those people free, um, and that, again, it's not that God's first move is bloodbath, but we started with whatever was the minimal amount of force necessary to get through to Pharaoh. River turned to blood didn't do it, and frogs and locusts didn't do it, but you, pro- you prodded me into this. This was not uh you know just me being bloodthirsty right out of the gate.
2: This I'm making a connection in my head between this and, and Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And the fact that you know, and I'm thinking Jesus in the garden saying, take this cup away from me, but it's not thy will you know, not my will, but yours be done. You know, in which God sacrifices God's self in that moment. And and here again, it's you know God's not placing the responsibility on someone else
1: right mm-hmm. you know
2: mm-hmm. while god isn't sacrificing god's self in exodus obviously god is taking the full responsibility i am doing this and i'm not going to print
1: someone else in that position it's interesting too then how the new testament so quickly uses the imagery following jesus example of the passover lamb and jesus so mm-hmm. that in the midst of the death of the firstborn what saves the hebrew people from death is the blood of the the Passover lamb on their doorpost, um, and that those who have the blood on their doorposts are kept safe inside and God passes over their houses, and how quickly Jesus uses that imagery, even taking the literal bread and cup of the Passover meal and going, This is me, I'm the bread, mm-hmm. I'm the, the cup. Um yeah, I guess the other thing that's interesting to me, this may be a conversation for another day, is that in the imagery and the the internal logic of the Passover lamb, the sacrifice isn't like for sin. It's not like something has to die. This thing dies to pay for your sin, but it's it somehow covers over you. But it's not like you are sinners and this 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 animal takes your punishment so much as if if blood becomes the marker that i won't punish i won't i won't kill those inside Mm -hmm. it's interesting because later on there are other images of sacrifice where it is very clearly the animal gets the sins put on the people but there's not that sin language in the passover story um so when we get to atonement language about how does jesus death do something sometimes the image is jesus death takes away our sin like a sacrifice took away sin and sometimes it's more like well, it's like the Passover lamb, and that's not really about dying for anybody's sins, but it gives its life to protect the people who are covered by its blood or something like that. So it's, again, the, the, the metaphor has become a little more complex. So uh, next time, we'll invite you to take another adventure with us into things we thought we knew or characters we thought were there in the Bible uh, that turn out not to be. And we invite you to join us along for the ride here on Crazy Faith Talk. See you all.